Section 34 of A Popular History of France, Volume 5. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 5, by François Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 42. Louis the Fourteenth, Richelieu and Literature, Part 1. Cardinal Richelieu was dead, and, quote, his works followed him, end quote, to use the words of Holy Writ. At home and abroad, in France and in Europe, he had to a great extent continued the reign of Henry the Fourth, and had completely cleared the way for that of Louis the Fourteenth. Such was the strength and superiority of his genius that he knew all the depths and all the mysteries of government, said La Bruyere in his admission speech before the French Academy. Quote, he was regardful of foreign countries, he kept in hand crowned heads, he knew what weight to attach to their alliance, with allies he hedged himself against the enemy. And can you believe it, gentlemen, this practical and austere soul, formidable to the enemies of the state, inexorable to the factious, overwhelmed in negotiations, occupied at one time in weakening the part of heresy, at another in breaking up a league, and at another in meditating a conquest, found time for literary culture." and was fond of literature and of those who made it their profession. From inclination and from personal interest therein, this indefatigable and powerful mind had courted literature. He had foreseen its nascent power. He had divined in the literary circle he got about him a means of acting upon the whole nation. He had no idea of neglecting them. He did not attempt to subjugate them openly. He brought them near to him and protected them. It is one of Richelieu's triumphs to have founded the French Academy. We must turn back for a moment and cast a glance at the intellectual condition which prevailed at the issue of the Renaissance and the Reformation. For sixty years a momentous crisis had been exercising language and literature as well as society in France. They yearned to get out of it. Robust intellectual culture had ceased to be the privilege of the erudite only. It began to gain a footing on the common domain. People no longer wrote in Latin like Erasmus. The Reformation and the Renaissance spoke French. In order to suffice for this change, the language was taking form. Everybody had lent a hand to the work. Calvin with his Christian Institutes, or Institutions Chrétiennes, at the same time as Rabelais with his learned and buffoonish romance, Ramus with his dialectics, and Baudin with his Republic, Henry Estienne with his essays in French philology, as well as Ronsard and his friends by their classical crusade. Simultaneously with the language there was being created a public intelligent, inquiring and eager. Scarcely had the translation of Plutarch by Amion appeared, when it at once became, as Montaigne says, quote, the breviary of women and of ignoramuses. Quote, God's life, my love, wrote Henry the Fourth to Mary de Medici, you could not have sent me any more agreeable news than of the pleasure you have taken in reading. Plutarch has a smile for me of never-failing freshness. To love him is to love me, for he was during a long while the instructor of my tender age. My good mother, to whom I owe everything, and who set so great store on my good deportment, and did not want me to be, that is what she used to say, an illustrious ignoramus, put that book into my hands, though I was then little more than a child at the breast. It has been like my conscience to me, and has whispered into my ear many good hints and excellent maxims for my behavior and for the government of my affairs." Thanks to Amiot, Plutarch, quote, had become a Frenchman, Montaigne would not have been able to read him easily in Greek. 
indifferent to the reformation which was too severe and too affirmative for him montaigne quote, to whom latin had been presented as his mother tongue end quote, rejoiced in the renaissance without becoming a slave to it or intoxicated with it like rabelais or ronsard quote, the ideas i had naturally formed for myself about man he says i confirmed and fortified by the authority of others and by the sound examples of the ancients with whom i found my judgment in conformity end quote. Born in 1533 at the castle of Montaigne in Perigord, and carefully brought up by, quote, the good father God had given him, end quote, Michael de Montaigne was in his childhood, quote, so heavy, lazy, and sleepy that he could not be roused from sloth, even for the sake of play, end quote. He passed several years in the Parliament of Bordeaux, but he had never taken a liking to jurisprudence, though his father had steeped him in it when quite a child to his very lips, and he was always asking himself why common language, so easy for every other purpose, becomes obscure and unintelligible in a contract or will, which made him fancy that the men of law had, quote, muddled everything in order to render themselves necessary, end quote. He had lost the only man he had ever really loved, Stephen de la Boétie, an amiable and noble philosopher, counsellor in the Parliament of Bordeaux. Quote, if I am pressed to declare why I loved him, Montaigne used to say, I feel that it can only be expressed by answering because he was he, and I was I. End quote. Montaigne gave up the Parliament and travelled in Switzerland and Italy often stopping at Paris, and gladly returning to his castle of Montaigne, where he wrote down what he had seen, quote, hungering for self-knowledge, inquiring, indolent, without ardor for work, an enemy of all constraint, he was at the same time frank and subtle, gentle, humane, and moderate. As an inquiring spectator, without personal ambition, he had taken for his life's motto, quote, who knows, or que sais-je, Amidst the wars of religion he remained without political or religious passion. Quote, I am disgusted by novelty, whatever aspect it may assume, and with good reason, he would say, for I have seen some very disastrous effects of it. Outside, as well as within himself, Montaigne studied mankind without regard to order and without premeditated plan. Quote, I have no drill-sergeant to arrange my pieces of writing, save haphazard only, he writes, just as my ideas present themselves, I heap them together. Sometimes they come rushing in a throng, sometimes they straggle single file. I like to be seen at my natural and ordinary pace, all a hobble though it be. I let myself go, just as it happens. The parlance I like is a simple and natural parlance, the same on paper as in the mouth, a succulent and a nervous parlance, short and compact, not so much refined and finished to a hair as impetuous and brusque, difficult rather than wearisome, devoid of affectation, irregular, disconnected and bold, not pedant-like, nor preacher-like, nor pleader-like." That fixity which Montaigne could not give to his irresolute and doubtful mind he stamped upon the tongue. It came out in his essays supple, free, and bold. He had made the first decisive step towards the formation of the language, pending the advent of Descartes and the great literature of France. The sixteenth century began everything, attempted everything, it accomplished and finished nothing. Its great men opened the road of the future to France, but they died without having brought their work well through, without foreseeing that it was going to be completed. The Reformation itself did not escape this misappreciation and discouragement of its age, and nowhere do they crop out in a more striking manner than in Montaigne. At the beginning of the sixteenth century, Rabelais is a satirist and a cynic. 
He is no skeptic. There is felt circulating through his book a glowing sap of confidence and hope. Fifty years later, Montaigne, on the contrary, expresses, in spite of his happy nature, in vivid, picturesque, exuberant language, only the lassitude of an antiquated age. Henry the Fourth was still disputing his throne with the League and Spain. Several times, amidst his embarrassments and his wars, the king had manifested his desire to see Montaigne, but the latter was ill and felt, quote, death nipping him continually in the throat or the reins, end quote. And he died, in fact, at his own house, on the 13th of September, 1592, without having had the good fortune to see Henry the Fourth in peaceable possession of the kingdom which was destined to receive from him, together with stability and peace, a return of generous hope. All the writers of Mark, in the reign of Henry the Fourth bear the same imprint. They all yearn to get free from the chaos of those ideas and sentiments which the sixteenth century left still bubbling up. In literature as well as in the state, one in the same need of discipline and unity, one universal thirst for order and peace, was bringing together all the intellects and all the forces which were but lately clashing against and hampering one another. In literature as well as in the state, the impulse everywhere great and effective proceeded from the king, without pressure or effort. Quote, Make known to M. de Genève, said Henry the Fourth to one of the friends of St. Francis de Sales, that I desire of him a work to serve as a manual for all persons of the court and the great world, without excepting kings and princes, to fit them for living Christianly, each according to their condition. I want this manual to be accurate, judicious, and such as any one can make use of. St. Francis de Sales published, in 1608, the Introduction to a Devout Life a delightful and charming manual of devotion, more stern and firm in spirit than in form, a true Christian regimen softened by the tact of a delicate and acute intellect, knowing the world in its ways. Quote, the book has surpassed my hope, said Henry the Fourth. The style is as supple, the fancy as rich as Montaigne's. But scepticism has given place to Christianism. St. Francis de Sales does not doubt. He believes." ingenious and moderate withal he escapes out of the controversies of the violent and the incertitudes of the sceptics the step is firm the march is onward towards the seventeenth century towards the reign of order rule and method the vigorous language and the beautiful arrangement in the style of the magistrates had already prepared the way for its advent descartes was the first master of it and its great exponent never was any mind more independent in voluntary submission to an inexorable logic René Descartes, who was born at La Haye, near Tours, in 1596, and died at Stockholm in 1650, escaped the influence of Richelieu by the isolation to which he condemned himself, as well as by the proud and somewhat uncouth independence of his character. Engaging as a volunteer at one-and-twenty in the Dutch army, he marched over Germany in the service of several princes, returned to France, where he sold his property, travelled through the whole of Italy, and ended in 1629 by settling himself in Holland, seeking everywhere solitude and room for his thoughts. Quote, in this great city of Amsterdam where I am now, he wrote to Balzac, and where there is not a soul except myself that does not follow some commercial pursuit, Everybody is so attentive to his gains that I might live there all my life without being noticed by anybody. I go walking every day amidst the confusion of a great people with as much freedom and quiet as you could do in your forest alleys, and I pay no more attention to the people who pass before my eyes than I should do to the trees that are in your forests and to the animals that feed there. Even the noise of traffic does not interrupt my reveries any more than would that of some rivulet." End quote. 
Having devoted himself for a long time past to the study of geometry and astronomy, he composed in Holland his Treatise on the World, or Traité du Monde. Quote, I had intended to send you my world for your New Year's gift. He wrote to the learned Minim, Father Mersenne, who was his best friend. But I must tell you that, having had inquiries made lately at Leyden and at Amsterdam, whether Galileo's system of the world was to be obtained there, word was sent me that all the copies of it had been burned at Rome, and the author condemned to some fine, which astounded me so mightily that I almost resolved to burn all my papers, or at least not let them be seen by anybody. I confess that if the notion of the earth's motion is false, all the foundations of my philosophy are too, since it is clearly demonstrated by them. It is so connected with all parts of my treaties that I could not detach it without rendering the remainder wholly defective. But as I would not, for anything in the world, that there should proceed from me a discourse in which there was to be found the least word which might be disapproved of by the Church, so would I rather suppress it altogether than let it appear mutilated." descartes's independence of thought did not tend to revolt as he had proved in publishing his discourse on method he halted at the threshold of christianism without laying his hand upon the sanctuary making a clean sweep of all he had learned and tearing himself free by a supreme effort from the whole tradition of humanity he resolved quote, never to accept anything as true until he recognized it to be clearly so and not to comprise amongst his opinions anything but what presented itself so clearly and distinctly to his mind that he could have no occasion to hold it in doubt End quote. In this absolute isolation of his mind, without past and without future, Descartes, first of all assured of his own personal existence by that famous axiom, quote, cognito ergo sum, end quote, or I think, therefore I am, drew from it, as a necessary consequence, the fact of the separate existence of soul and of body. Passing oft by a sort of internal revelation which he called innate ideas, he came to the pinnacle of his edifice, concluding for the existence of a god from the notion of the infinite impressed on the human soul. A laborious reconstruction of a primitive and simple truth which the philosopher could not for a single moment have banished it from his mind, all the while that he was laboring painfully to demonstrate it. By a tacit avowal of the weakness of the human mind, the speculations of Descartes stopped short at death. He had hopes, however, of retarding the moment of it. Quote, I felt myself alive, he said, at forty years of age, and examining myself with as much care as if I were a rich old man. I fancied I was even farther from death than I had been in my youth. He had yielded to the entreaties of Queen Christina of Sweden, who had promised him an observatory like that of Tycho Brahe. He was delicate, and accustomed to follow a regimen adapted to his studies. Quote, oh, flesh! End quote, he wrote to Gassendi, whose philosophy contradicted his own. Quote, oh, idea, answered Gassendi. The climate of Stockholm was severe. Descartes caught inflammation of the lungs. He insisted upon doctoring himself and died on the 11th of February, 1650. Quote, he didn't want to resist death, said his friends, not admitting that their master's will could be vanquished by death itself. His influence remained for a long while supreme over his age. Bossuet and Fenelon were Cartesians. Quote, I think, therefore I am, wrote Madame de Sévigné to her daughter. Quote, I think of you tenderly, therefore I love you. I think only of you in that manner, therefore I love you only. Pascal alone, though adopting to a certain extent Descartes' form of reasoning, foresaw the excess to which other minds less upright and less firm would push the system of the great philosopher. Quote, 
I cannot forgive Descartes, he said. He would have liked, throughout his philosophy, to be able to do without God, but he could not help making him give just a flick to set the world in motion. After that he didn't know what to do with God. A severe, but a true saying. Descartes had required everything of pure reason. He had felt a foreshadowing of the infinite and the unknown, without daring to venture into them. In the name of reason, others have denied the infinite and the unknown. Pascal was wiser and bolder when, with St. Augustine, he found in reason itself a step towards faith. Quote, reason would never give in if she were not of opinion that there are occasions when she ought to give in. By his philosophical method, powerful and logical, as well as by the clear, strong, and concise style he made use of to expound it, Descartes accomplished the transition from the sixteenth century to the seventeenth. He was the first of the great prose-writers of that incomparable epoch, which laid forever the foundations of the language. At the same moment the great Corneille was rendering poetry the same service. End of section 34